Our guest speakers today, Tom Murphy and Michael Arthur, are co-directors of the Penn State Marcellus Center for Outreach and Research. As a cooperative extension educator and co-director of the Marcellus Center, Tom Murphy, a Penn State grad, draws on his 25 years of experience consulting in the field of natural resources to guide the center's outreach activities. Recently, Murphy was honored with the 2010 Pennsylvania Governor's Award for Environmental Excellence for his work identifying and advising landowners on the most appropriate drilling practices for the Marcellus Shale. Michael Arthur is a geosciences professor and co-director of the Marcellus Center. Formerly the department head of geosciences, Dr. Arthur has received a number of prestigious awards, including the L.L. Sloss Medal in Sedimentary Geology, the Francis P. Shepard Medal for Marine Geology, and the Wilson Awards for Research and Teaching in the College of Earth and Mineral Sciences. In addition, he is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Geophysical Union, and the Geological Society of America. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to Tom Murphy and Michael Arthur as they present Marcellus Shale Challenges and Benefits. Thank you, Kelsey. We were trying to decide where it was that we were going to stand. I have to admit, we haven't done a presentation. We were in a room that was angled quite like this, so we're, we're, we're trying to find our way here. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning and talk about things as they're related to Marcellus. We're going to talk about a pretty wide range of things here today. Uh, what we thought we would do right up front is we'll present a few things by uh, uh, PowerPoint, which we recognize is not really the uh, form here today. We want to have a lot of dialogue, and certainly we're going to move to that very quickly. But we just wanted to set a basis under the discussion for kind of bring everybody to the same point. So bear with us for just a moment as we do that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what we see as impacts out there and also what the process looks like and what some of the economics are that are driving this uh, process here in Pennsylvania, which I think is important to understand so you know why, why this is developing here and why the pace is moving along uh, the way that it is. We got cut off. Coming, coming back. There we go. Okay. So with that, uh, we'll, we'll jump right into it, and we'll talk a little bit uh, about some of these points. And I'm going to show a few, and then we're going to, uh, we also have a short animated uh, video clip in there, which is going to show the process actually underground. So it's just a quick couple minute kind of uh, video, and I think, again, if you bear with us, it'll explain a lot of what's occurring out there. It'll be helpful in the, the broader understanding. One of the things that, again, from an economic standpoint, or we look at change that's occurring here in Pennsylvania, it's important to... To, to understand when we think about the natural gas piece. In parallel with natural gas being developed here in Pennsylvania, we're also seeing a lot of the alternatives. Uh, the major one is we see it in a lot of areas in rural Pennsylvania, and it really seems like it's kicking the gear. A lot of mountaintops and, and quite a few counties now spread throughout Pennsylvania is wind power. And we're, we're watching not that being developed in just certain locations out there, but we're actually watching, again, in parallel and co-located with natural gas development in this picture in the eastern side of Tioga County, the western side of Bradford County, which is one of the largest uh, wind power locations right now in Pennsylvania. And that's also one of the real hot areas for natural gas being developed here with the Marcells. So we'll, we'll, we need to be thinking about that. We need to be thinking about the likelihood of both of these, this, this tandem reaction here uh, with our energy sources being developed over the course of time. One thing to keep in mind with that as well 
is we look at Pennsylvania, we've been a net importer of energy over the course of uh, time. You don't know how far back we would go to draw the line in the sand, but when you think about electric, we think about uh, some of the other petroleum products we use for energy generation, whatever that might be, whether it's transportation fuels or, or whether it's uh, electric uh, generation. Again, we've been a net importer, but the expectation is by the year 2013, if that's gonna switch the other way around, will actually be a net energy exporter. So again, that change in our energy future coming very quickly. We try to answer that question, why here, why now? Some of the things that we're starting to see with a new uh, law that, that is now in the books and the reporting of companies when you're now reporting some of the yield information that you're getting off of wells, we're able to tap that information. One of the things we're able to see very quickly is if you look in that northeastern, north central tier of Pennsylvania, uh, several of the counties up in there, we're starting to, to see what those trends are and what the yields are coming out of those wells. So the facts are indicating to us and that the, these numbers here are reported as BCF or billion cubic feet increments, okay? And that's the amount of gas that's actually come out of those wells in the time frame. These are 10 wells in that uh, two county area from July uh, 2009 to June 2010. This reporting will be done on every six month increments now. So again, you'll be able to track that, see what, what that actually looks like. Why do we care? Why is that important to us? Again, the facts are indicating that these numbers are very, very large and they exceed what the expectations were for companies that were doing this work. So again, the economics are driving the picture and driving the, uh, the overall build of the infrastructure. And as you can imagine, that's a big part of what those impacts will be as we talk about some of those that we have listed here, and we'll talk about some of those as we go through the presentation. And just another indication, we look at those numbers, the top of the top 20 wells in the state right now, 19 of those are in that northern tier area. If you look out to 40, the top 40 wells, 38 of those wells are in that north central, and it expands down, you go into Tioga, down to Lycoming, over uh, into uh, Wyoming, so again, that north central tier. And I'll show where the rest of them are here in just a minute. The life expectancy or the yield expectancy over the life of the well, and most of these wells are expected to run somewhere between 30 and 50 years, some geologists and Mike might indicate as well and when he presents here in just a minute, um, they're, they're looking at the overall yield from those wells as being somewhere the expectations were between three and a half and four and a half billion cubic feet of gas over that whole duration of time. So you can see then from these numbers in less than a year's time, uh, how large those numbers are relative to the, what those early estimates were. So again, if you're trying to answer the question, you know, why here, why now, why is this pushing along, those kind of numbers and those kind of economics really start to answer that question very quickly and why companies are very interested in working here. If you do a comparison, again, a lot of, a lot of the work, the early work that has been done was done in Texas in the shale development down in the Barnett. And if you take the highest producing county right now in terms of yield, and compare apples to apples, the first six months worth of data and the first six months yield data. And I should maybe back up for just a moment and say, when you open a well, a well is drilled and comes online, the production, about half of that production is in the first two years, 24 to 30 months of the life of the well. The rest of it is going to be a very, very long, gradual tail over that 30 to 50 years. So again, you want to look and trying to do a comparison. If you look in the first six months of the production of those wells, compare Bradford down at, and, and then that's Bradford County, Pennsylvania, against the uh, Barnett looking at Tarrant County, which is, uh, I think, Fort Worth, Dallas-Fort Worth area, and do a comparison between them that you can see that the Rosales development uh, in Bradford County is that much higher than it is down in Texas. So again, 
wired Texas-based companies and, and other um, uh, companies that are from out of the area coming here and doing this work, well, they have the technology, they've been working in other areas, and they see the geology here is, is really superior based on the comparisons to other places in the country. Um, we try to show comparisons so that people understand, well, you know, why is it happening? What's the intensity of that uh, uh, impact out there? Some of the, again, some of the things we'll talk about here that are on our uh, posters. But you can see from Bradford County, which is right now the most developed uh, place in terms of this gas development in Pennsylvania, all these individual dots here that you can see around this uh, slide are wells that have been drilled. There's several companies that are, that are drilling up in that area. Chesapeake, uh, Talisman, which was Fortuna, EOG, Chief. Uh, there's a couple other ones that are maybe a little smaller. Those, those would be the top ones. And again, you can see all the wells that they put in. The other thing this slide illustrates and helps answer the question, why there versus uh, Elk County or some other county in Pennsylvania? Well, part of it's geology and part of it's the infrastructure that's in place. Large transmission line that's in place. That are, those are the uh, large yellow ones here. And then uh, companies now are trying to tie those individual wells that they drill because of the good geology that's there into those transmission lines. And to do that, they have to build a lot of the gathering lines. About 350 miles of those gathering lines have already been built in Bradford County. So again, that's part of the infrastructure bill. That's part of the impact that we'll talk about uh, as we uh, talk about some of the issues that are connected with it, including environmental and water quality and, and wildlife and a lot of things that uh, are really uh, come out of that type of information and see what that build out there actually is. So where is the development that's occurring? You can see Bradford County up here. If you could read the numbers, and some of you can, some of you probably can't from where you're sitting. But Bradford County is the hot spot. Tioga would be right in there, Susquehanna County, Lycoming County, and then down here in the southwestern part of the state. There's about a four-county area down here that really is that, that second uh, big hot spot. And the reason for that down there is this area that, that Mike is showing is because you have what's referred to as wet gas down there versus this gas up here is dry gas. What does that mean? Well, that means that this gas up here is essentially pipeline ready. So it can be tapped from the ground, go through a compressor, well, actually goes through some dehydration to take out a little bit of moisture that might be there. And at that point, essentially, it's ready to go into the, the transmission line and off to the marketplace. The gas is down here in the southwestern corner, and it actually extends up through this area as well, out into parts of West Virginia to here, parts of Ohio, and then down into West Virginia down here. Wet gas at that point refers to the fact that it has other hydrocarbons in it. Uh, propane, butane, ethane, some of those constituents are in that. That has to be stripped out of the gas, and then it's sold into a different market. But those other components have extra values. Again, part of the economics, part of what's driving the picture as to why this development is occurring differentially here in Pennsylvania. We look at uh, these slides actually show the build of this process over the course of time. And uh, it always gets ahead of me. But uh, and this is just the permits. And typically, there's more permits. This is 2007, 2008. And these are permits that have been issued, 2009. And part of 2010, and that's through August of this year. So again, you can see the intensity of where this build is versus the numbers that I showed a minute ago and how quickly that's actually occurring here in Pennsylvania. If we start to look, and again, that's just permits, and typically it's about a two-to-one ratio in terms of permits that are issued or wells that are drilled, about half as many wells, and it really depends on the year and the company and a variety of other factors. So if we look at wells drilled, here's 2007, 2008, 2009, and again, part of 2010. And again, you can see those hot spots, those three counties in the northeastern corner, and then where Mike was just showing you down here in the southwestern corner as well. Butler's heating up, too. There you go. 
So again, a bill that's occurring in Pennsylvania and the, and the pace at which it's occurring, which I think is important uh, when we think about some of the other factors here, and we talk about some of the other uh, points that we'll mention here going forward. The other thing that we follow real quickly is a rig count. And you can see there's a very strong and steady bill in that rig count here in Pennsylvania. Again, attributed to the permits that have been issued and the wells that are being drilled. You can see the companies broadly are coming in, and, and you just see this, this constant steady build in a number of drilling rigs, mostly horizontal rigs that are working here in Pennsylvania. If you look at West Virginia, it's more of an up and down kind of thing. It, there's a slow build in it. Look at Ohio, it's uh, somewhat the same. Uh, New York, there's really uh, nothing going on up there because of the drilling moratorium for, for things Marcellus. And we're essentially looking at Marcellus drilling when we, when we talk about that type of a rig. Uh, the process, um, this is uh, the whole process kind of condensed down to one slide of what it would be like to, to step through looking at leasing land, the seismic, acquiring the permits that have to be acquired by companies that are doing the work, all the way down through acquiring the water, constructing the site, drilling the well. And again, we're going to show some of these things in a couple uh, pictures here. We'll step through them very quickly. All the way down to building the pipeline, restoring the uh, site back to, uh, to what it's going to be restored back to. Some of it left as a pad, some of it restored back to what it looked like. And then marketing the gas, again, going into those transmission lines and going forward. Mike, this is the point I think I'll step into the uh, uh, video. Mm -hmm. okay. okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to show you essentially through this video the underground portion of it. You can't go down there, you can't see it, but this animation I think does a real nice job to show what that looks like. And it'll just take a couple minutes to run through that. And then we're going to come back to the surface and actually step through with some pictures of one particular well site that was being developed here. It's still in the process of being developed up in Bradford County uh, through a colleague that's right adjacent to his property. So we'll show that. So we'll be passing around during this uh, video. You can look at these. Uh, these are samples of the Marcellus shale from uh, deeper wells. Um, and this is what it looks like in the subsurface. It's a very tight um, formation. And you can imagine that it's very difficult to squeeze any gas out of that because what the uh, people who pr prospect for this are looking for large volumes of gas in place and the ability to produce that from these wells. The way they have to do it in the shales and the new technological development is to stimulate those wells through a process that I'm sure you've all heard mentioned, hydrofracking, right? <coughs> which is to pump down large volumes of, of uh, water at high pressure and kind of crack the formation, uh, in part taking advantage of natural fractures or joints that are already there. When they do this, they pump fluids down, and those fluids are carrying little grains of sand, lots of sand, tons of sand, that get pumped down. And when the fluid goes into the rock and breaks it open, as you're going to see here, that these sand grains get forced into the fractures that form, the openings, and then hold them open when the pressure uh, is reduced back to what it was originally. And that allows the gas to migrate out of the rock into the fractures and go into the production well. And in order to take advantage of the maximum thickness of rock that they can do that, they need to drill horizontally. Vertical wells just aren't economic because the Marcella Shale is relatively thin. No more than 150 feet in most of the area and less than that in other parts of the area. So if you drilled only a vertical well, you would have a very uh, small interval that you could tap in. And 
but Range uh, Resources, which was the pioneering company in Pennsylvania, started with wells like that in the southwest, and they were encouraged enough that some of those are, are producing, but they began the horizontal drilling. And in order to do that, they go out up to 7,000 feet or more uh, within the formation. So we're going to show the video, and we'll just talk you through the process. And it's important because you'll see that um, industry practice, best practice is to take care of the um, of casing the well as they go through and cementing the well. And those are going to be aspects that we talk about later on. I'm sure you have questions about this. And so that's something I need to do. So this is Wyoming, not Pennsylvania, obviously, or Colorado. This is from Citrus Energy, but it's a nice little um, video. And we'll start out. This is what the land surface looks like. And uh, then we'll see, we uh, begin with a pad. And Tom will walk you through some of this um, through pictures here in Pennsylvania. And the drilling rig is there. And that rig might drill as many in Pennsylvania as four different holes. Okay, And then um, in large parts of Pennsylvania, the Marcellus Shale is at least 5,000 feet deep or deeper. So they're going to go through the upper part of the rock, first drilling a large diameter hole. And this continues for some time until they get to the bottom of the freshwater zone, the aquifers that people might use for fresh water. At that point, they stop. And this would be the last fresh water that they encounter. Below that, it's all salty. They withdraw the drill string. And then they set a casing. This is called a surface casing. There may be several of these as they neck down in the well. Um, they start out with a conductor pipe, which protects the hole from soil falling in and so on. And then it's really important. This is the key process. That casing is fitting in the hole, but the hole is larger diameter than the casing. So they pump cement down the hole, and that cement is forced down. There's a wiper plug that goes down, pushes that cement out, and up around the casing the annual, in the annulus of the hole. And then that hardens. And it only takes about two hours for it to harden. But they have to wait eight hours before they can resume drilling. But they send down now a smaller bit. They go through that cement plug. And they begin drilling further into, into uh, the stratum. This might be uh, you know, five or 6,000 feet, depending on where you are. It could be deeper or shallower. And this is called the kickoff point because from here, they're going to take this well into the horizontal. And you know they have uh, uh, skilled drillers who can operate a little motor here that will begin to make that hole bend. The pipe is flexible enough that it can make a 90 degree bend, but it happens over about 1,000 feet. And now this is the Marcellus Shale, let's say, and they're drilling laterally or horizontal. And they're going to go out some distance, depending on what the geologists told them they needed to do to gather the gas. It could be 3,000, it could be 5,000, it could be 7,000 feet. And when they finish this, they're going to set casing in all the rest of the hole. So basically, the entire hole will be cased with at least one um, stainless steel casing string. They're withdrawing that drill, 
and they're going to set in here, this is going to be called a production casing. By the time you get down here, this casing diameter is only about five and seven eighths or five and three quarters inches in diameter. Again, cement is pumped down. What they want to do is to prevent any gas that's produced from any of the horizons they go through from migrating up the side of the hole and possibly going into aquifers. And it's this process that is really critical, the proper cementing. And there are com companies that are subcontracted to do this work. Okay, the rig is um, set up, but now they tear it down off of that well and they set up what's called a Christmas tree, which is a wellhead which has a blowout preventer and so on. They can now cap that well and contain any pressure or any gas or water that's going to migrate. And now they're uh, getting ready to perforate this hole. And what they do is they have small charges set in here. They pack off a certain interval of the horizontal hole and they blast little holes in the casing and through the cement and into the rock. And that starts the fracturing process, right? But it's not all, it's not over yet. Then they um, pump down the water, the sand, and certain uh, additives that they need to be able to carry the sand, reduce friction, and so on. And they hydraulically frack that hole at very high pressure. Much of the water stays there. If they use, in total, maybe 5 million gallons of water in fracking, a well, uh, about 20% of that, maybe a million gallons will flow back and they store that in tanks or in holding ponds. Um, the rest stays here, the propens are forced in there, and now gas can begin to migrate into this well. But they continue the process, usually in, you know, 500 foot segments or so, yeah. Just a, a quick question, what's the sense of the cement casing if you then go blow holes in it? Because it can't migrate along that casing. It's only conducted into the, um, the production casing itself, okay? So the cement is to prevent any fluids or gas from migrating uh, in the hole around that casing. So this, in this case, it was a stage three uh, frac. And thanks for the question, that's a good one. Um, so they did three different stages with plugs. Now they'll take those out and now gas can begin to flow up the well. And um, with that gas comes a little bit of water, uh, but um, in most cases, it's largely gas. And this is what the pad looks like at the end. They only have one well head. Many of these will have four or more. And now we're seeing the pipeline. We won't um, talk about that any further. But we'll be happy to come back to this and. Um, talk, answer any more questions in um, just a moment. Mike, I want to point yeah. out that um, Chris is on this side of the audience and I'm over here okay. with microphones. And when you have questions, um, uh, raise your hand. We'll get to you with the mic. And we're just trying to pick up your questions by mic so everyone hears them and, and we can record them. Great. Thanks. Okay, Tom. Thanks, Mike. So that was the underground piece. So. You know, if you've never been out to one of these sites and we, we keep encountering lots and lots of people that never have, we thought we would step through, well, what does the surface look like? And this is something that obviously, you know, if you had a contact or had an opportunity for a tour, this is what you would see. So it's kind of a start to finish, which then tying into what Mike was talking about with the underground piece. 
obviously staking it out, cutting the trees, building the pad. How big are the pads? What we're seeing initially, they were three, four, maybe five acres. Now we're starting to see pads that are, that are pushing that eight to nine acres out there. And the reason for that largely is because companies, this is evolving, the science is evolving very quickly, and companies are seeing that they're looking to drill more and more wells on an individual pad. So when you start to hear, you know, 100,000 or 150,000 wells that might be drilled in Pennsylvania, keep in mind that's not individual well sites or, or pad sites. Those are individual wells, and a lot of those could potentially be on an individual pad. Six to ten is what seems to be the average that most companies are looking at right now. I think with some of the other shales that are out there, which Michael uh, talked a little bit about, I think it's likely that we'll see more than that on individual uh, uh, pads out there. But again, give you some kind of an idea. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a flat area. Down on a farm field or down in a low-lying area, you can see very quickly, that's not the case. Top of hills, side of hills, you know, a, a big bulldozer can make a uh, severe site pretty flat pretty fast. So, you know, that's pretty much the, the process there. Again, stepping through it, uh, other ENS controls that are put in, control the surface water, carry that off, filtration process that's in there. And then there's a stone pad that's put on the top. Typically, you're looking at geotechs that's put down first, stone base that's built on top of that. Often that stone base is between one and two feet thick. You might want to tell them what geotextile is. Oh, I'm sorry, geotextile fabric, which is a plastic type fabric, which is an engineered product to add some extra strength so that you don't have to put down as much stone. Uh, just add some more, uh, uh, again, it's an engineering uh, practice to uh, stabilize the site. In this particular site, there's going to be three wells that are going to be drilled. This is a conductor pipe that Mike was talking about. Those wells you can see are, are spaced right next to each other. Now, the fact that they're only 10 feet apart or 15 feet apart on the surface does not imply how, how far apart they'll be uh, once you get underground. So subterranean, you're looking at typically between 600 and 1,000 feet apart once they're underground. Often what these are, in this particular site, I, I uh, actually think they're going to come back and do six on this site. Uh, they're just showing there's three here at the moment. So typically three of those would go in one direction, and Mike can explain why that is because of the geology, and three that will go the, the opposite direction. So kind of a, like a double pitchfork design. And those laterals, again, the middle one might actually go down and go straight out, whereas the other two are going to go down and, and make a, you know, kind of go out there uh, on, on a curve. And Mike explain how that process can happen over time. So that gives you some kind of an idea of what it looks like there. This would be the, the uh, groundwater uh, string, the, uh, the protected groundwater. You can see there's some distance around this. The rig that's, draw, that's uh, actually drilling that, you can see is different than the rig that Mike was showing uh, earlier, or what was shown in the, uh, the video clip. But this is just to set that first piece of casing, and then again, this is grounded back to the surface. Mike had described this, and I like to describe it as a, a pipe inside of a pipe, inside of a pipe, inside of another pipe, and the small pipe being the production string, Mike talked about that goes all the way down to the bottom, and the grouting of that that comes back up through. So there are issues. We've seen, oh, two dozen to, to maybe 30 cases of methane migration here in Pennsylvania, and typically that's from some of the shallow zones and where there's some of those gas zone, zones are up in this area, and the methane that's in those zones, the natural gas that's there, actually migrating up the outside of the pipe when that, that is opened up, that channel is opened up, and if the grouting wasn't done correctly, and finding its way into the freshwater aquifers that were above. And we can talk about some of the, the rules that have changed because of that. The gas is not typically the Marcellus gas from down below finding its way up, but it's some of the shallower gas 
finding its way. And that's why Mike indicated that grouting is such a key component. That engineering aspect of it is really uh, the most, one of the most important in the, in the whole uh, uh, process going forward to protect the groundwater zones. Uh, the other thing that we're seeing is becoming more common out there are these uh, pads, uh, these uh, pad protectors that are being put down or decking that's being put down. So here's your stone pad. Typically then they come in with a felt pad, put it on top. They put a poly liner on top of that and then they put this plastic decking. And you'll see as we go a little further here with the next couple slides, then they put their drill rig on top of that and all the, the major work that's being done is being done up on top of that, that plastic pad. So it's what it boils down to then is redundancy that's built into the system to protect the pad, protect the groundwater, protect anything that might occur on site like a diesel leak or a hydraulic hose breaks or some frac fluid that might uh, be an issue if there was a spill or something along those lines. And we can talk more about those uh, from uh, rolling off site or going down through the uh, groundwater zone and, and causing a, uh, a contamination site. The other thing we're seeing companies that are employing this type of a system typically that are diking and using an extra le uh, level of redundancy around a tank that might have some kind of fluid in it, which again could leak. So we see a number of these practices and it's becoming uh, much more routine out there throughout Pennsylvania. Not implying that all companies do that, but most of the larger companies have moved to that and we're seeing the mid-sized companies are moving in that direction pretty quickly. Start of the drilling, again, putting the, putting the, you know, the rig's not up, the rig's going up, you can see the trucks and equipment coming in and then just give kind of an aerial shot of well, what does this look like then if you see the whole picture and all that activity that's actually occurring while the drilling is going on. And I think that gives you uh, some idea there. Uh, workers in this case are not living in these trailers. These, you have uh, geologists like Mike that might be out there. You have company people that are out there. Some of the contractors that, that have a, uh, a bigger component of the workforce might be out there as well. And then you can see a lot of the equipment. And here's the outline of the pad if you can see my uh, pointer going around there where most of those uh, uh, operations are going on on top of that uh, decking that's there. Uh, so what's the next step? We talked about the different steps and, and Mike indicated some of that as well. So the drilling is done at that point in time, the rig is pulled out, the uh, wellhead or the Christmas tree is put on as uh, was indicated before, then the hydraulic fraction, uh, fracturing uh, process starts and that's where they're actually breaking the stone as was indicated in the video and Mike was talking about as well. That involves a lot of water. The drilling side of this, you're looking 30, 40,000 gallons of water, about the amount of water that's in a large swimming pool. It's the fracturing process. We look, about, look at the uh, large amounts of water that are used. It's in the fracturing process. There you're looking somewhere between three and five million gallons, depending upon how many of those frac stages are there. And I think the animation showed three or four. Uh, companies now are out to 17 to 20 of those. So they short the interval. They're, they're doing more of those, and, and that's one of the reasons they're getting some of the higher yields that are coming out of some of these wells. And that's part of the place where they're experimenting how close to make them, how many to do, how much energy to use, and some of those things as well. Water is also being moved. These pipes are indicating uh, not just trucking water around, but also moving water in some of the pipes that uh, uh, can move it from point A to point B instead of taking trucks uh, and using so many trucks and moving it over long distances that way, which obviously has impact on roads, impact on traffic, uh, accident potential, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, land use impacts, and I'm just going to go through these here real quick so we can get to some questions. Land use impacts, agricultural impacts, you can see here, I think we're seeing already a change in some of the agricultural dynamics out there. And that's part of my background, so we look at that carefully. I think we're seeing my estimate and what we've seen in some other states as well 
is we'll see less of the intensive agricultural type uh, or, or animal type agriculture and more um, uh, agronomy and horticultural type crops that are grown. I don't think you'll see a shift away from agriculture. We're not seeing that. What we're seeing is a change in the dynamics of what that agriculture will look like. Uh, also, again, we think about impacts and land use. We, we, we talk about a large amount of pipeline that still has to be put in. And there, essentially, we're talking about those gathering lines. Not so much the transmission lines, but the gathering lines that will go from well to well to well as we go forward. What about some of the other concerns? And we're going to talk about uh, some of those. And certainly, I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions about, about that. But just to answer right up front, is this a risk-free type activity that's occurring here in Pennsylvania? And quite frankly, quite honestly, as you can imagine, just statistically, if nothing else, more trucks, more people, more activity with an industrial process. There's going to be accidents that we're seeing those occur. Here, actually, with a uh, tanker that was carrying uh, some of the wastewater that was coming back, and remediation at this point uh, actually included digging out this area and taking that to a landfill and refilling that with, uh, with clean soil. So we are seeing those occur out there, diesel spill with things like this as well, and that's likely something we're gonna see again statistically going forward. But the, the uh, level of that at this point in time with the amount of um, development that's occurring still seems relatively low. So again, some of the points to consider. And the last site that I have, because I see I'm getting the, the cane here, is <laughs> just where some of our websites are if you want to take a look, if you have a pencil and, and paper, and I'll just leave that up on the screen, but where we have a lot of our information, certainly a lot of our research, marcellus.psu.edu, or some of the publications are here if you're interested in some of the finer points, naturalgas.psu.edu, and if you're interested in workforce type uh, impacts, the msetc.org. Mike? Okay. No, no pain involved, but we just want to make sure we have a big crowd. We want to make sure we have time for everyone's yeah. questions. Um, Mike, did you want to jump in with a comment? No, you know, I think um, we could start and see where it takes us. Okay. We could fill all the time, so okay. just saying. You know. So we'll certainly um, open, the, uh, open the floor for questions. Let's start over there. I, I want to know where the wastewater goes. Okay, good question. Okay, so uh, the wastewater is, as we said, maybe up to 20% on, on average of the water that they use. It was uh, initially um, sent either to processing uh, plants because the biggest problem is the salt content. These waters go down fresh, but they come back after having mixed in the subsurface. Um, they come back pretty saline, and it might be, you know, three times seawater salinity or more, and that's the hardest thing to get out. But now companies are moving towards less and less processing, and they're doing reuse and so on the site if they drill six wells they will take the flowback water from the first well that they crack mix it with makeup water fresh water from some other source put that down the next well and so forth and then at the end they can take that water and either have it processed whatever's left or take it to the next pad that they're uh, drilling so that's really a great um, improvement because we don't need to worry about disposing of that water. And here in Pennsylvania, there are only, uh, in Texas, you know, they can put this water in pits, open pits, and in, you know, a matter of a week or two, it's all evaporated, a million gallons gone, and there's salt left or a really briny solution. And they can pump that or any of that water down any number of disposal wells that they have in Texas. Pennsylvania only has seven, maybe eight 
operating disposal wells which don't have the capacity to uh, to receive uh, any of this or much of this. Um, some companies are still, I believe, trucking, uh, isn't that right, Dave? Trucking um, their water to Ohio, which actually has many more disposal wells and putting it down there. And they're glad to see it because, you know, it's an income stream from the Marcellus. Um, so reuse and recycling is very good, but there are firms um, that are um, focusing on processing and efficient processing, <coughs> low cost, to be able to take some of that water and remove <coughs> the dissolved solids and bring it back to drinking water standards, which could then be released in, into streams, rivers, etc. Like, I'll just make a, a comment too, maybe just to, to tie in with that for a minute. What you're, what you're likely to see, because we're seeing it right now, as Mike is indicating, somewhere around 60% of the water in Pennsylvania that's being produced is being recycled, which is what Mike's talking about. The other options, so you know, what, what will this look like going forward? I don't think that any one of those uh, solutions that Mike is talking about, or, or methods, is going to be the whole picture. It's likely to be a portfolio of those uh, overall. So, the, the commercial processing, which we're seeing still some of that bricks and mortar being built, as well as units that are out there already. Uh, the injection wells, which Pennsylvania doesn't so much have the geology to do, Ohio does, West Virginia does. Uh, certainly as you look down in the, uh, the Texas, Oklahoma, the geology down there uh, will allow for that. And other newer technologies like uh, crystallization and some of the evaporation uh, technologies that are, that are uh, coming uh, uh, into the marketplace that are being deployed and the filtration or minor filtration which is part of the uh, reuse of that water. What they can't do is you cannot dispose of this water in a river directly and we still hear people talking about that and that is not allowed here in Pennsylvania. That would be an illegal operation to do that. Um, you also um, can't use it for brine application on a road and I still hear people talking about that. So uh, companies that are putting brine down on the road or PennDOT that's putting brine down on the road that's brine that's actually commercially produced. That's not water coming from one of these sites. So just a clarity on that point. We have a question in the back here. Yes, the, um, the Williamsport uh, Guardian uh, in their current issue has a list of all the contributions that the oil and gas companies are making to legislators and candidates in the current election. And it leads to a three-part question if you feel uh, competent to discuss this area. The first question is, is it true that Pennsylvania is the only state that does not tax this type of extraction of a non-renewable source resource for the benefit of its uh, citizens, especially given the problems that will develop over the next 50 years uh, that you've already indicated? The second is... I think the answer to that is yes. So that's an easy one. Okay, it's nice. the only large petroleum right. producing state that doesn't, that doesn't. have okay. a Okay, then the second question is, what, if you know this, uh, in comparison with other states, what would you consider to be a fair or an average tax that Pennsylvania uh, should be charging uh, for this extraction? Ooh. And thirdly, if you would hazard an opinion, what, what do you think is the likelihood that Pennsylvania's legislature uh, will pass. Well, I answer all the easy questions, so Tom's going to You didn't answer the first one, though. Oh, yeah, that's true. Good questions. Uh, and certainly, you know, those that are engaged in the conversation right now know that that's a very, very 
hot conversation going on in Harrisburg? So the answer to the first one, as we indicated, the answer is yes. As we're aware, uh, Pennsylvania is the, uh, the only large producing, uh, gas producing state out there right now that does not have a severance tax, specifically a severance tax. The second one was the, um, uh, the, uh, the fair amount. What, what would that uh, be? You know, that's not a place that, that's one of the, you're shaking your head already, you pretty much knew that I would say that. That's not a place, and I think the laughter indicated that as well. That's not a place, that's a very political question. And that's not a place for us to, to necessarily uh, have an answer for that. But I will answer the third one. But just to touch on the second one for just a moment, one of the things we have done, and we're involved in some of that uh, dialogue and research as well, is finding out well, what are the other ones out there. So those that are making those decisions in Harrisburg, because it's a statewide decision, have that information and they can see on a, uh, a quick and easy comparison what that actually looks like. They're using that data right now. But that decision still comes down to a political decision in Harrisburg and not one that uh, Mike and I seem to be able to uh, have any impact on. But let, can I make sure. one comment, yes. which will probably get me in trouble? No, I'm just going to say that um, if you look at the economics of this, the um, House proposed 39 cents per thousand cubic feet. And if you, uh, just for comparison, and I won't make any um, statements, evaluative statements, but the price of natural gas right now is in the $3.90 range per thousand cubic feet. So that represents 10% of what, right off the top of what a company would produce. Um, a lot of companies, you can go on the web, uh, Chesapeake has investor, uh, range has investor uh, documents, and they try to indicate what it costs them to produce that thousand cubic feet of gas. And when gas gets down to about 350 without the severance tax in Pennsylvania, if that happens, um, it's going to be marginal for them because of the co very high costs of doing these lateral wells. Right now they're doing well, but so without any evaluation, I'll just give you that comparison. And one thing I'll add in before I answer the third question, because I think it ties in with what Mike is saying, if you look at the different shale plays across the country, Marcellus is actually one of the cheapest to produce. And one of the, there's a variety of reasons why that's the case. But the economics are very favorable with Marcellus because you have a huge resource right on top of the marketplace. So you don't have to ship it in by pipeline, build pipeline, build capacity from Texas. The two of them are right next to each other. This is the largest commercial gas market in the world, not just the country, but in the world, the northeastern or central part of the United States. Big resource right next to the market, very favorable economics. So proximity or location, location, location is certainly a big part of that. And the third question was about the, uh, the, the reality of it being passed. That's, am I pretty close? Okay, whether it will be passed. Um, right now, we're following that very closely. And right now, there's a lot of indications that it will not get passed in the session that's going on. Uh, something in the paper about it. And again, you know, we have people down there looking at that and watching that and feeding us information. It does not look likely by our read at this moment in time, and obviously, you know, politics change pretty rapidly down there, it does not look likely that that's going to pass in this session. Now, with that said, if you look ahead, what's the likelihood that there's going to be a gas tax, which if I can go a little further and suggest you, you're thinking about, uh, the likelihood of a gas tax in Pennsylvania, I think, is inevitable. And most industry themselves, which you would expect is where most of the opposition would be, most of the industry themselves, the largest players, are all saying that as well. 
So I think it's inevitable, and they say that, so I think you're going to see it. So then it comes down to what will the politics look like after November, and how will those dynamics play out? You tell me what the change is, and then maybe I'd have an opinion. So Mike and Tom, we have lots of people eager to ask questions. I'm going to ask people to ask one part questions rather than three, and we'll keep the answers. <laughs> that was a good one, though. But that was a good one. But we'll keep the answers as brief as possible to let more people ask. We have 15 minutes left in the program, so I'm going to throw it over to Chris. Uh, are you free to divulge uh, just who underwrites your research at Penn State? Sure. So that would depend on what part of our research. So the Marcellus Center for Outreach and Research presently is entirely uh, internally funded by university sources. There are actually uh, four entities that provided the, the startup for our center for three years, and those are the College of Agricultural Sciences, um, College of Earth and Mineral Sciences, uh, Penn, Penn State Outreach, and uh, the Penn State Institutes for Energy and the Environment. Um, where those money came from, monies came from, we don't track, but um, they were university monies. And so at present, we do not accept, have not accepted industry money for this. In full disclosure though, I do research on the geology of the Marcellus Shale. Independent of this. Independent of MCOR, so I'm not, uh, you know, they aren't connected, at least. Um, I hope not. And th that is uh, supported by industry. So, uh, you know, to be honest, we do receive industry money. And, um, you know, my, uh, my hope is that you'll understand that we have students that need to be trained and supported. We're interested in getting our students the best training, access to research equipment, and access to companies because those are the jobs for a lot of the graduates, especially in my college, Earth and Mineral Sciences. And so our goal is to support those students. I don't personally take any salary from any of the grants from industry for our research, nor do the two other colleagues of mine who are involved in that particular activity. We use it all to buy equipment or support students. It's okay, all we have, about the students. We have a question over here. Um, as Thank I you. understand it, this water that goes into the pipes is not drinking water to start with. It's full of a number of interesting chemicals that are proprietary. Should the industry not disclose what these chemicals are? Yeah, the, the water that is used when, when the, um, let me back up in your question just a little bit. I think everybody heard it since you used the mic. The water that is actually used, the source of that water could be a variety of different places. Typically it's from a large stream, typically from a river. Um, the other place that it's sourced from is public uh, drinking water supplies if they have extra capacity by permit, uh, depending upon the watershed they're in. So typically in Pennsylvania, a lot of that watershed is the Susquehanna River Basin, and that's controlled by the Susquehanna River Basin Commission. So they allocate, and that's where payments are made from company to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now the water is, is commingled at that point, the water goes through the fracking process, which I think is where your question is going. There is when the combination between the water, the sand, which is the, the bulk of what goes down, and the chemical additives that are put into there. So the next part of your question, if I'm correct on what you're asking, is what are the additives? Companies are moving, I think, uh, I won't say at a fast pace, but they're moving along 
and disclosing what those chemicals are. Now, range resources, for instance, as, a, as an indication of where that's going, is one of the companies that's now listing them on their website, or they should be there from what I understand. Chief is going to, Chief Oil and Gas, the same thing. Uh, they're not all there. Not all the companies are doing that. Some of them are listing them in a more generalized kind of way that this is the group of things that we might be using. And, you know, we might be using five of those, we might be using 25 of those. We're not using 500 of them, as, you know, some have indicated that's the case out there. Uh, EPA is also now requiring um, nine of the, the larger companies to, uh, for, in a full disclosure, to list those chemicals as well. But part of that is not just what's the chemical, but it's also what's used in this site right here versus that site over there, and what's the percentage of whatever chemical used here. And that's what we're seeing companies are moving in that direction. And that's part of the new uh, EPA, or I'm sorry, the new DEP uh, regulatory process is to move in that direction as well. We would send you to the range resources website if you want to see very detailed information. They've, they've Chris, gone. you have a question over that there? That trend will keep going that way, and it's, it's developing. I think it's going quickly. <laughs> to follow up, uh, do different companies use different chemicals? And Yes. So what happens here is that the actual um, extraction companies like Range Resources or Chesapeake or Cabot or Cheap don't actually do this themselves. They subcontract that to a number of um, industry, um, you know, providers of this of this uh, um, technique, and so you might see Superior Well Services or University, sorry, Universal Well Services. There are a number of companies, Halliburton, who actually come in and do the fracking, and their recipes are what are being used, and they're proprietary, and that's why it's been very difficult to to pull this information out because some of them think they have an advantage. You know, we're using this com compound. We're not going to tell our competitors because then they'll be able to do it just as well. Um, I'm not saying that's an excuse for not divulging it. Um, but, but the recipes have been company-specific, yes. We have a question. We have a question over here. What accommodations do they make when they come to drill to the people who live on, say, a dirt road um, which I do, it's a mile off of the main road, I have to travel this dirt road to get to work. And if they're running trucks, and especially in the spring when the mud is the worst, uh, do they create their own road to do all this work? Or am I going to have to, you know, bypass trucks on my way to work and leave an extra hour early to get there? You could request that they purchase you a helicopter. <laughs> I wouldn't count on it, though. Yeah. Uh, but to answer the question a uh, uh, little, little more seriously, if it, I'm assuming that's a public road of some type, a township road? It's a, it's a private drive. Private drive. If, if it's a private drive, uh, totally owned by those that, that might live off of that drive, that's an agreement that you need to put in place, and it should be in the lease that was put in place and was signed between you and the individual company, or individual landowners along there that might have leased to that company. Because we don't own, we don't own the rights to. You don't own the subsurface. No. Okay, um, they have to maintain that road. Is the reality of it? Now I'm going to make a slight detour for just a second. Bear with me on the microphone there. Um, <laughs> sorry. If it's a if it's a township road or a public road, and I realize you said that it's not the case. Typically, what they have to do is they have to put a bond in place, or they have to have a road use agreement between that legal entity, meaning a township or borough or whatever it is 
and the company. So they have to, to, to post the fact that, and that they're going to come back and they're going to repair the road to the same uh, standard it was or something above that, not something below that. In a private lane situation, again, a lot of that's going to be dictated by what was in the lease, even if you weren't the one that signed the lease because you don't own what's under it. If they come across your property, for instance, the well site, go a little further, the well site was actually on your property and you don't own the minerals, you just own the surface, they have to pay you the damages of what they're actually doing in that process. The same would apply to a road if it was your road that they were accessing. So let's say you were the only one back there, it was your driveway, they have to pay for those damages that, that, would, uh, that you would encounter on that driveway. Okay, but what about the traffic I'm encountering when I'm trying to get in and out? Well, uh, we'll hold that question for now since we have um, uh, just a few minutes left and a number of folks want to get in. Back and I'll um, Chris, do you have someone on that side? You're tough. But <laughs> good. I've read that uh, of the 2,000 or so wells that have been drilled in Pennsylvania to date, there have been about 1,600 uh, legal violations of code on building those. And, I know thousands more are, are already leased to come online, and I wonder uh, if you could speak to what do, what is what are the chances that that 80% of uh, wells, you know, being done incorrectly will uh, be reduced? Um, you want me to touch? okay? Um, you're asking me to speculate. I guess in in your answer because you know we don't know what's going to happen in the future and that's what you're asking me to, to answer uh, but I will step back for just a moment and say well, what are the violations and we've had a look at what some of those violations are some of those are administrative violations and if you talk to John Hanger for instance secretary of DP he'll say the same thing there's a certain percentage of them a group of them you know they didn't cross the T and dot the I kind of thing so if you want to take them off the table for just a moment and look at violations on the ground then you'd have to start breaking them down. Are the ENS violations that there was mud that went down the road, which has to be dealt with, and there's a large grouping of them, again, as per EPA or per uh, DEP analysis of that and by the analysis that we did. And then there's a grouping of them that are other things. Okay? And the other things are the ones that I would consider maybe the most serious. You're looking at methane migration, which I mentioned a moment ago. You're looking at diesel spills that have occurred uh, on pads or frack hoses that have broken in that process and something has spilled. And that those are in that grouping. One of the reasons that I would speculate looking ahead that you'll still see a number of those is because EEP is fielding more and more inspectors to go out and look for things. So that, that process out there I think is something that yeah, EPA is, or, I'm sorry, DEP is the, fire, the environmental firewall in this process. They're the ones charged with making sure that part is done right. And having those inspectors out there looking for those things, I think, is the part that everybody in the room wants to make sure uh, happens correctly. And likely, if I was to speculate, we'll still see a number of those because we have more and more inspectors looking more and more for those type of things. That's just my speculation. Okay, we have a question, actually. Um, we have a question in the back here. Uh, Pennsylvania has a lot of medium-sized landowners with individual wells. If you were a medium-sized landowner with your own well, uh, water well, would you have a would you have a natural gas well on your property or not? Your point to make. Um, I live this life. Um, you know, I was thinking about that uh, even coming into the meeting today. As I I live, uh, I'm not from State College. I work here, but I live over in Lycoming County, and we have some of these wells uh, not too far from where we live. So we have 
wells that are being drilled through the aquifer that we're using for fresh water. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it seems like it does. Um, I can't prevent somebody that leaves back there from having a well drilled back there. So then my concern and how I answer that question for other people is when we showed the process there about the drilling, my concern is not so much about the chemicals that are being used, which I think is where a lot of the conversation goes. My concern goes back to the integrity of that well as it's being drilled uh, and as it's being cased in the grounding and the standards that are being used there. That's where my concern is. So knowing what you know, would you have a well on your property? Knowing what I know and seeing where the regulations are going right now, which were just passed yesterday, yes. I believe yesterday to increase the um, integrity of that process, seeing where that's going and seeing that most of the companies now have gone that way already because of methane issues, uh, I would not have a problem with that. And again, I live that life, that's where my order is coming from. Okay, we'll let the last question uh, of today be Chris's, so. Hi, uh, my question has something to do with the question that was uh, behind me about enforcement. Uh, I spoke with an EPA uh, employee from Lycoming County last the week. EPA? No, Environmental Protection Agency, EPA. Okay. From Lycoming. And uh, I asked him point blank, I, I said, there's 100 operating wells in Lycoming County now, and, and your slide confirmed, I guess there's 103. And there's going to be 10,000 in Lycoming County at the peak. Is that possible? That's uh, not my question, but my question yeah, is... I think there'll be 150-ish in the state, somewhere... 150,000. Yeah, so he was saying it's going to go from 100 wells to 10,000 in Lycoming County. Well, now that's an estimate or a guess. And I asked him, point back, I said, do you really think that you can protect the watershed with 10,000 wells going in, in Lycoming County, in one county? And he said, do you want my opinion? The EPA opinion or my honest opinion? And he says, no. So my question is, how are you going to enforce... 10,000 wells and all the different violations and how can we as Pennsylvanians condone the, the drilling if that's you know if that's the case that's a scenario you want me to try sure okay I don't want to get in trouble yeah well you know there's your it's a difficult question because there's speculation in that question as well uh, that gentleman was giving you an opinion based on what he's seen or what he thinks what we're seeing and what, what the science is showing, um, based on the integrity question that I just answered, it, my opinion would be, which I think is what you're asking, my opinion would be if that integrity is done right, if the engineering is put together right in that process, in terms of the groundwater, in terms of uh, a potential for contamination from below, I think that we're well on our way to, making, to resolving that issue. Now, if you're asking the question a little differently and saying, will it be groundwater contaminations from the surface, spillage, or things of that nature, that you're going to see over the course of time. I don't think there's any question about that. Trucks are going to roll over, uh, equipment is going to break, hoses are going to fail, and that's why we need to insist through the process, through regulation, through uh, DP inspection, more of what we were showing like in the one where you have multiple levels of redundancy in those pads to make sure that that does not occur. So that those 10,000 wells or whatever the magic number turns out to be in the end, that we have that protection in place to resolve that. Uh, similar to, it kind of go in a different direction, and you could cite a lot of, or create a lot of different analogies, I guess, but you think of all the gas stations that we have out there that have underground storage tanks in them that we visit every day, 
And there's a process in place to make sure that they don't leak. And we have lots of them, and they're right at the, the aquifer, or close to it, we'll say. I mean, they're not all in it. Depends how deep they are. Depends how hot the aquifer is. But it's important to make sure that there's a regulation in place, there's an inspection process in place, and that when gas stations turn over ownership, tanks are pulled, new tanks are put in. So again, there is a, a, a regulatory process to get that right. I don't know if it answers all your question, or it might not uh, you know, make everybody sleep better at night, well, but should, that would be my response. <coughs> that I am a fossil fuel burner. Okay. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to uh, thank our guests. Please join me in giving a warm thank you to Tom Murphy and As you can um, see, we drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thank you. I should have warned you. We've got great audiences for these events and great questions. So thank you all for coming out today, especially if it was your first time with us. Um, next week, we have a wonderful event uh, with Dr. Bob Gabay, who's the director of the Center for Obesity and Diabetes Research at uh, Penn State Hershey Medical Center, and uh, coming out to talk to us about the diabetes tsunami facing the crisis of diabetes and obesity. So another important topic for society, and we hope you'll join us uh, right here uh, next Wednesday, 12 to 1. Thanks again very much for uh, your participation.